Hello, thank you very much for coming. I'm Dina Schattenkirk, and this is Talk Popsy. And you are? Jacob Sabu. Wonderful. I do know you, but I've never seen you in person. Same here. I know. This is so nice to see people that I've only spoken to, right? So this whole um, topic that we've been doing recently is um, artist cognition. Now, people talk about just about anything they want to talk about. So Mm -hmm. what do you think about what do I think about? Well, first of all, I want to say nice to meet you in person. Finally. Nice to meet you too. And I did read the chapter in your book that you recommended, the art, cognition, and aesthetics one, the one that you emailed. I found it very fascinating. I read your chapter first because I wanted to say, oh, she's my professor. Let me just get through that chapter first. Yeah. And then I went to the beginning about the Xenophanies and the figs part. I'm going through that one. And the whole thing about gist that you spoke about, I thought that was really interesting. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about it? I thought it was really attuned to what we see in just how we interact with each other. Because the first thing that I thought of was that, yeah, sure, it's something that we see in art and psychology, but also we can see that in human behavior too, how we judge things, how we judge people, like when we have first impressions of things. And so that concept of gist and art, I thought you can extend that to many other different topics about reality too. Like like what? Like you mean the, the quickness that we assess things? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. So talk to me about that. So how does that work? Yeah. So I remember you wrote about how in the first few hundred milliseconds of seeing a piece of artwork, we get all this information that's not always conscious information. And that's the same thing that when we have experiences with seeing people for the first time, seeing faces, uh, seeing environments. And I thought that was really, it was really cool. And I connected that to uh, moral judgments because you mentioned also in the text how we don't just get basic sensory information. We also get oh, our aversion or uh, desire towards a piece of artwork, whether we want to see something more or yeah. less. And I thought that was very, again, you can extend that out into multiple different fields. Yeah, desire and aversion, right? Mm-hmm. Hobbes talks about that, right? <laughs> and I always thought that he was so negative, you know, to think that we're so <laughs> simple. But there's probably a lot of truth, right? You see mm-hmm. something and... Whether you kind of are conscious of it or not, you are pulled to it, you want it, or you pull away from it, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of, ever since I sort of really understood that, I remember reading on Hobbes and thinking that, that we're just amoebas, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That picture has always been in my head, you know, we're amoebas that kind of like encircle something or or repel and go away from it, right? Mm -hmm. But visually, we do that all the time. You know, you see something and you kind of want to go toward it Mm -hmm. or you kind of, you know, and you pull away. Mm -hmm. Maybe not completely physically, but, you know, you can retract yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And it's approving of something or disapproving of something. It's the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. So how does that govern? Like, as you walk down the street, how does that govern you? Well, again, that's one of the uh, questions that's very deep. (laughs) You even mentioned in your chapter that this is not meant to be uh, answers. It's more furthering the questions. It's more bringing up problems that we have to answer. And so I think that continuous stream of information that we have when we perceive the world, it's, I think it's partly to do with how we evolved 
and how the brain just has to filter out information because there's just too much that comes at this end into our senses. Yeah, there's too much. Yeah, so our brain yeah. just has to filter things out. We can't out. do it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we make these little, like, schematic things, right. right? That we sort of eliminate a whole bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. right? And then we sort of just absorb what we can sort of cope with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but you, I, I got the feeling, Jacob, that you wanted to tie it somehow. You wanted to go sort of from the, the visual just experience into moral decision making is that right i made a connection with uh jonathan Haidt's work on the sort of moral revulsion theory about how we evolved to he specifically talks about the parts of the brain i remember you also spoke about parts of the brain that are activated when we see artwork and when we experience just he it's not the same parts of the brain that activate, but he spoke about a part called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Yeah. It's behind the eye somewhere near the center. And when people have damage to that part of the brain, what happens is kind of shocking. So normally, let's say if I ask you, don't get offended at this, but no, let's I never get offended. If yeah. I ask you, oh, what would you think about taking a sledgehammer and bashing your mom in the face? You probably just be like, "What are you talking about? Why would you even ask me that question?" You just you just have that sense of just ugh, like don't yeah. even you can't even imagine that. But people who have damage to this part of the brain, what typically happens is that they don't have that instinct of revulsion, that turn off. What they do is they have to weigh out the pros and cons about oh, what are the pros of bashing my mom in the face with a sledgehammer, and what are the cons of it? And it becomes sort of dry and robotic. Oh, utilitarianism. Yeah, it becomes large. Yeah, it becomes to the point. It becomes as bland as picking out a washing machine at Home Depot. It's like which one is like the best fit for me. So you don't really. That's interesting. That's an interesting. uh, I I never heard of that one. Yeah, it's in his book. uh, I believe it's in his book, The Righteous Mind. I remember hearing it on a podcast. It was a. It was a selection from an audio book specifically, and when I heard that, I thought, "Wow, that's." really dark <laughs> and kind of creepy about oh what that whole part about humanity and i remember i he instantly connected it to plato about how oh we have to free the mind the rational part of the soul from the passions of the senses and the body but in reality they both need to work together because reason on its own has to f- take so much information and it doesn't have the sort of guidance of the passions to say oh no this is just off limits this is this is wrong, this is right. It doesn't have that sort of barrier around things that are sort of morally acceptable for us to work with. So we just have information overload when we go off the bit like off the yeah. edge of that. Yeah, you know, I've been interested for a long time in editing, mm-hmm. right? How much our brain has to edit, right? Right. And I I think a lot of scientists and doctors are obviously interested in the example that you gave, damage, right? Because then it really locates what part of the brain does what function, right? Right. But it is interesting how much the brain has to knit everything together. Yeah. For mm-hmm. sure. And every part has to be functioning, right? But it's also interesting about how much we have to edit and kind of get and, and limit what we take in. Because right. the brain just can't cope with all of the data if it were really to bring everything in. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be kind of pointless in some ways, right? So we have to kind of hierarchicalize and decide what we care about and choose and limit, right? Right. But mm-hmm. um, that 
Is there a is there a, a name for that disorder? Not you, that I know of. Either I can't remember it off the top of my head, or I just haven't yeah. found a name for it. It's really interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, it is like I sort of made a joke. It is sort of like utilitarianism at large. You know, you just sort of add up, right? It's the utilitarian right. calculus, mm-hmm. right? You just add up all the goods and add up all the bads, and then that's how you go forward, mm-hmm. right? Like the cold logic. The cold yeah. logic of it, right? And and I always thought that that, of course, was wrong, right? Because mm-hmm. if it's your mom, right? Uh, if we have to, you know, what we care about, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we see. Right. Right. That's what we focus on. Mm-hmm. That's what matters to us, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we're sort of selecting for that and we have to do that. I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that also in the part about gist about how your cognition can affect what you perceive. And I found that actually really also interesting because what yeah. I did was I instantly remembered a conversation I had with a friend a few years ago about free will i'm not going to talk about free will now because that's a di- whole different conversation but yeah. the relevant part was about how i brought up how the mind is sort of splintered and fragmented and i remember talking about he had a different view of the self than i did back then and i was talking about conscious awareness and he was talking about oh well the whole me is the self right and so i said oh when you have a conscious experience right here's an example you mentioned foveated perceptions through our eyes, right? And I love that word, foveated, that you used. Yeah. And what scientists have actually found is that in our retinas, when we learn about this in psych class, in the back of our retinas, most of our cone cells, which are the color-sensing cells, right? They're in the center of our eye. So we see with a color in the direct center of our field of view. But around the edges, there are mostly rod cells so cone cells are color sensing and rod cells are black Black and white white, light sensing and so in our periphery of our vision it's actually in black and white supposedly but we're not conscious of it because it's also blurry yeah it's also blurry so we can't even technically see it we can't make it out but in the center of our field of view it's all color it's sharp and we don't even notice it and i brought that up to him and i said oh did you know that and he said well some part of me probably knew that subconsciously and i said yeah sure but the fact that you didn't consciously know it just means you yeah, didn't know it right? yeah there's, yeah, there's yeah. a separation like even if even if you were to say okay sure that's unconscious information there's that fragmentation of the mind that shows that okay there is some brokenness yeah. or miscommunication that's going on there that's a really interesting point, Jacob, because what you just pointed to there was when we say, I know something, mm-hmm. that means I consciously know it. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And all of that information that we're operating on, that our brain is actually using when it does all the synthesis, mm-hmm. a lot of it is not conscious information. Right. And yet, it is 100% reliant on all of those constituent parts mm-hmm. in order to make the whole, right? That right. we then believe we are conscious of. Right. Right? So there's, there's like sort of layers of, of mistakes, I guess you'd say, right? Yeah. That we're kind of making, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's a really, that's an interesting, um, that's an interesting thing. You remind, I knew that about the cones and the rods, mm-hmm. but I, I th- 
We just and didn't I, make that connection? Well, you know, I have before, and I have been thinking a lot about peripheral vision, right? right? Because I mm-hmm. have been sort of trying to figure out why video is so awful. And so I have been, <laughs> I have been thinking a lot about the role that peripheral vision plays, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I hadn't been t- remembering the cones and the rods connection. Mm-hmm. You're 100% right about that. Yeah. And I don't remember how the conversation ended. I think the conversation was cut off because we were walking home. So we just had to split in part ways. So sadly, we didn't get to conclude on a proper note. But yeah, there is a lot of... And I do genuinely believe that, sure, when you said it can be mistakes in the way that we construe reality, sure, it can be mistakes. Sometimes it can also be mercies in the fact... So when we mentioned before how there's this information overload... I believe that when we evolved, we did evolve in a way to make the brain most efficient at detecting things that are safe, things that are okay. Dangerous. Dangerous. Yeah, dangerous. A big one, You also did mention that in um, that part of that chapter that you wrote. And I did remember there's a section that you wrote. Oh, if I could pull out a quote. I actually have a quote from it. Hold on. Just because I don't want to miss quote you or mischaracterize oh, it's your fine. Words. I won't remember anyway. <laughs> oh, I don't have the quote. Dang. It's I didn't okay. take a photo. You can, you can, I took photos yeah. of other quotes, but there was one where you talk about possession about things and how we, that, and you contrast it with experiencing things like hunger. We don't tend to possess hunger per se, but you po- you said that we possess things like microphones or hats or glasses or cars. And we, I guess there's a section about naming and we name things based on whether we can possess them or whether we can fight over other people about possessing them. I think so. I think that's what naming is a lot about. Yeah, sure. And I agree with that and that's a part of it. But I do also believe that naming can also be used at least in our ancient ancestors in a way to identify threats or sources of food or sources of yeah. things that can help us survive and thrive. Basically. Yeah, I think that's right. So if I think that's a, right. So if there's a predator, you can say, oh, there's a, hey, like, grug, there's a predator yeah. down the stream behind the cave in the willow grove or something. Yeah. And he's like, oh, what does that predator look like? It's like, oh, it has claws, it's black, it has, it looks like a cat, it looks like a lion. What do we call it? Let's call it a panther. So we can just more easily talk about things. Yes, I think yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's exactly right. So, but, so I think that that's how we get that notion of objective reality is mm-hmm. because those are things that we have to negotiate in some way or other, right, with one another. And so we point to those. Right. But there's so many of our internal processes mm-hmm. that we don't have to negotiate without, with other people. So yeah. we don't name them. You know, the, the pain in my stomach, right? Yeah. It can be 10 different pains and I don't name them all. And I think yeah. that's probably the problem that doctors are always faced with when they go, all right, mm-hmm. one to 10, how painful is it? Because you don't have a description for that particular process that you're having, right? But it's probably the same thing about how we divide what we're conscious of and what we're not conscious of, right? We don't have to be aware of like the black and white and color divide. We don't have to. We don't have to. Like, there's no reason, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have to negotiate that with you, right? It's just this process that happens inside me, right? So I don't have to name that. And so it is really 
weird, right? When we edit out reality, what we think is okay to edit out and forget about and what's not. Yeah. And what we emphasize. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that you made that good point about how some of it is socially constructed. Oh, I think a lot yeah, of it is. a lot of it is right? socially constructed. It, it's, it's so weird. Like, you think of all the things that we're aware of, right? If you think of all the like, kind of like uh, social equality movements that have happened in the last couple of, of decades, right? Right. Um, behaviors that we never identified, and yet they mm -hmm. were just sort of the seamless parts of society, but we didn't call them whatever, right? We didn't name them as being like negative and destructive, right? Ah, so people mm -hmm. can get together and go, oh, wait a minute. We're going to name that. We're going to name that. We're going to call it out. Yeah. We're going to identify it. Mm -hmm. And then you start seeing it because you have a name for it. Now right. you start to see it. Mm -hmm. Then you start seeing it more often. Yeah. Yeah. And you see that in your own personal life too, in addition to the social view, because when something, someone introduces you to a new thing or a concept, and you start noticing it more, and you start, hey, where were, where, where was this before I noticed that? Yeah, where was and it was there, I but I didn't notice it. It's a very disturbing thing. Like, I've seen that in, in a very trivial way with words. Yeah. I, I, mm -hmm. I learn a new word, and then I, like, see it everywhere. Yeah. And I just think, oh, my God, was I just, like, closing my eyes every time I came across that? You know, mm -hmm. like, how did I not know that? Yeah. So, so what do you think? You know, this is to tie it kind of back to the, you, you brought up moral stuff at the beginning. So... Do we, and you brought up the idea of, you said you're not going to talk about free will. So I'm going to bring in free will again. <laughs> oh. uh, <you> know. Okay. <laughs> but, but we clearly have the freedom to decide right. how much we're going to see and how much we're going to edit out. Right? And we have sometimes the moral obligation to push a reset button on ourselves and go, all right, I'm not going to edit in the way that I always have edited. I'm going to. I'm going to look at things a little bit differently, right? Right. How much of an obligation do we have? And this is kind of a, I don't, we don't usually take the conversations in this way, right? But how much of an obligation do we have to insist for ourselves that we exercise that freedom and reset our buttons and open ourselves up to the way other people edit and the way other people look at things? I think it's extremely important that we do so because seeing things from other people's perspectives, seeing not just how we view the world more clearly, but seeing how other people engage in that same process of viewing the world uh, and valuing things differently and how we both fundamentally work on a similar structure of valuing things, but we can perceive things in different ways or in just... in in different amounts so things that okay i can bring in uh another talk that jonathan Haidt did about politics he uh his book is called the righteous mind why good people are divided about on religion and politics and there was a ted talk that he gave back a few years ago and it was an amazing amazing ted talk and he was looking at moral foundations of people's politics whether you're more liberal conservative uh independent or libertarian whatever and he came, he used this five moral foundation theory. And I believe, if I can recall, it was, there were five of them. The first one is reduction of harm. Second is equality and fair treatment. Third is purity. Fourth is respect for authority. And fifth is in-group behavior and in-group preferences. And so 
we all tend to use those five basic moral frameworks irrespective of which country you're in. If you look at the uh, TED talk he gave, he gave examples from the US, from Canada, from India, China, Africa. And it was a consistent, almost consistent results about how liberals and conservatives, they all had the same basic five moral foundations, but they just valued each one slightly more than the other. Different percentage. Yes, sure. Distribution, yeah. Sure. So uh, more liberally minded people tended to view and value uh, equality and reduction of harm as more important than the other three while conservatives tend to devalue all five similarly. And so that I saw that and I thought that was very interesting. Now, liberals tend to view equality and reduction of harm more so than conservatives viewed equality and reduction of harm. But there was a drastic difference in how much they valued those two over the other three. And I think when we understand that, when we understand that we're all human, we're all viewing the world using some kind of foundational uh, moral framework, it's just how we interpret and choose to value those things differently, then a lot of the hostilities that we have towards each other can go down. Because you have these sort of really ridiculous caricatures of one side calling the other's names and ignorant or just inhuman. And I just think, no, we're not inhuman or ignorant it's just that we haven't been able to talk to each other yeah, I think properly. that's really true people don't listen yeah they don't yeah listen. yeah i think that's really true um l- let me just ask you one last question so you're you're talking here about um everybody more or less being the same, which I think is true, right? Um, And people not stopping to look at somebody else's perspective. So I'm going to just bring the last one back to the question. And I don't know if you agree or you don't agree with me, but it's, to me, I think one of the very important functions of art is to get people to sort of look at other people's perspective, right? It's one of the little ways that we listen to each other. We kind of go, oh, God, that was your experience. Let me sort of take that in for a moment, right? So do you think that's right? Do you think that's the function of art is to sort of look at each other's gist experience a little bit? I believe, yeah, that is one of the main functions of art because art is an expression of one's ideas or self in some way or another. Just like how you mentioned the the Velasquez painting, how it could be a self-portrait. And you spoke about how you were able to step outside of yourself and see, okay, maybe this is how the artist viewed himself. And you experienced, to a certain extent, his experience as close as you can possibly get through the expressions that he made in his self-portrait. All the details, the complexities, the color, the focus, all of those things. And so, yes, of course, I agree that one of the major functions of art is to really share each other's experiences about how they view the world, what they value, what they find to be important. And you see that really in the history of art because all throughout time, even in, you know, from ancient Egypt to now, you can trace the different focuses 
of art in those time periods. We can see whether they were more focused on the pharaoh or, you know, life after death or religious themes or humanist themes or even just the simple thing, things like a picture of your dog, like, you know, a painting of your pet or painting of your child. And it's done through the perspective of the artist who's doing the actual painting, the formation of the work. And so you get a glimpse of how that person experiences that reality of the focus of the art piece. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, I think so. It seems to me that that's a nice way that we listen to each other. But you're right. It doesn't necessarily... It's not enough. You're right. There's yeah. a kind of political divide mm-hmm. that also has to be overcome, mm-hmm. even in that environment where we're all looking at art. You're right. People don't listen to each other enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming here and letting me listen to you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for having me. This thank was you, a wonderful Jacob. conversation. Okay, it was. Thank you.